Romans chapter 15. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. We have completed 14 chapters of this amazing letter written by the Apostle Paul to these Italians converted and living in the city of Rome. Romans chapter 15. We'll address the first six verses this morning. So let me read those just to put them in your memory for a moment. Paul says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the great miscalculations of all Christian experience is the bifurcation or the separation between theology and real living. Some say theology is theoretical and to be discussed and pondered and mused upon for theologians sitting in seminaries and in think tanks, for those who are authoring books and diving deep into speculation. Others say theology is fine, but it's abstract. What does the Trinity really have to do with my, my relationship with my wife or my children or my job? Still others think it's unattainable. They have this idea that theology is only for the educated, equipped, and the really smart people. Others put theology in the category of being impractical, not useful. All of this combines to the word disconnected. In other words, there's a disconnect in some people's mind between what's true of God and what's true of His Word and what's happening in our lives, not only day to day and not only hour by hour, but second and moment by moment. Romans 15 follows Romans 14, which follows Romans 13, which follows Romans 12. And at 12 is the great launching point where Paul says, I've taught you gospel theology for 11 chapters. Lots of practical application and implication in those chapters, by the way. But he turns a key and says, so what? Therefore, start living in a way where you're sacrificing your life by giving your mind to God, control of your thinking to the Savior and living deliberately 
in such a way that what you believe, what we believe about theology and gospel truth has application and implication on not some of what we do, but on everything we do. This chapter is really one of the climaxes of this this idea of the gospel impacting life, especially life in the church. Now, any Bible student eventually discovers a phenomenon like our text presents today. It's, a, it's something that you can't avoid. It's something you'll notice. The phenomenon is when a chapter division shows up in the wrong place. Now, chapter and verse designations were developed beginning in the 12th century with the Hebrew Bible. That's why if you look in the Hebrew Bible, those are sometimes a verse or two off than uh, later designations in the Septuagint and in the uh, the, uh, the applications of the uh, versification in German, the first places it showed up. Between the 12th and the 16th century, that's where chapters and verses showed up, and they were just for reference point. Can you imagine having uh, the book of Romans and saying, go to that place where it says? I mean, it would be really hard. So I'm thankful to God for these versifications. But we have to remember that they are contrivances and conveniences. They're not divinely inspired. This is a place where our friends who did it missed it by six verses. Because really the first six verses are the conclusion to chapter 14. Chapter 15 begins by concluding, at least in our designation of these verses, the argument and the the theme and topic of chapter 14. Chapter 14 addressed, as we saw it in great detail, the subject of Christian liberties or Christian freedoms or gray areas. Now, I had some people ask me at the end of the chapter, you talk about Christian liberty. What is the liberty? A liberty is something that you can do that's not uh, forbidden in the Scriptures, but is that something that you ought to do in reference to how it impacts others? It's real simple. That's a liberty you have, but not a liberty you have to take. It's a freedom that you have. It's sometimes designated as gray areas. And we discussed this in great details. And one of the things that was highlighted through that study is the difference between preferences and principles, right? Uh, Preferences can be different and all under the covers of our Bible and be different with uh, Christian to Christian, and, and yet principles can't be. In this chapter, he concludes chapter 14, at least the first six verses, of saying the principles that, by which we operate govern our preferences to such a degree that our preferences are subjected to our love for others. Said another way, this is a, this is a section, this is a paragraph of six verses teaching self-denial. Jesus said, if any man wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This, these are six verses that outline exactly how you and I might do that. Now, a little background. In Paul's day, the issues were things like eating meat that had been sacrificed to an idol, celebrating festival days as an Old Testament Jew who was now converted as a New Testament Christian, even the drinking of alcohol in their day. But the primary conflict, we, conflict we, we have to remember was between Jew and Gentile believers. The believing Jews had come to Christ 
and they wanted to amalgamate their Old Testament observance of the law with the New Testament understanding of Christ. And before we're too hard on them, wouldn't you? If he's the Jewish Messiah, doesn't that make sense? Well, this just keeps going. And yet in Acts chapter 10, with the sheet that drops about the, um, uh, the dietary laws being obsolete, and Acts 15, which talks about moving toward understanding the gospel as the regulating principle, not the law, there was a movement that was taking place that Paul was shepherding very, very gingerly. These Jews were intent on keeping the dietary laws in Leviticus, honoring the feast and festival days, remaining ceremonially clean, which, by the way, included not even touching a Gentile on Saturday. The Gentiles, on the other hand, these were just pagan Romans who came to Christ, had their sins forgiven. What's any better than this? Their gods and their idols never provided what Christ provides. They were ecstatic. But they had no allegiance to the dietary regulations of the Old Testament, the days and festivals and even Sabbaths that were outlined in the law. They were merely happy to be forgiven of sins and acceptable to God. This caused a collision which God intended to be a glorifying agent. That their differences would become an opportunity to love, understand, serve, and humble themselves before each other in a way that a lost and dying Rome that was watching them would scratch their heads and say, what are those people about? These are two groups that were fundamentally different in every background sense. And yet the gospel, what they believe about this this Galilean who was crucified on Calvary, had a major difference in how they related to one another. Now, we have the same potential conflicts in our church today. Let's, Let's not make it general. We have the same potential conflicts at Mission Road. Maybe not between... Jews and Gentiles who are being saved, but between people who are raised with certain preferences and people who are raised with others, people with convictions about preferences in gray areas that don't align. Now, you could just run to another church and find a bunch of people who agreed with you until they found some people who didn't agree with you, and then you would keep running from churches or running people off from churches. Or we could learn what this text tells us. How are we to serve one another Not in spite of, but because of differences. Now, there's a lot of things. We've talked about this all during chapter uh, 14. Uh, What kind of music do we listen to? What can a Christian do or not do on Sunday? What kind of entertainment is suitable to a believer? Can or should a Christian uh, drink alcohol? Where should a Christian send their kid to school? How many Christians, how many Christians, how many children should a Christian have? How many children uh, are are, uh, prudent? Uh, Can a wife or mother work outside the home? If so, how much? Under what conditions? Is it okay to possess luxury items, nice homes, cars, clothes, etc.? I told you about, what about Halloween? Length of hair, amount of makeup use, color of socks, breastfeeding, birth control, circumcision, eating gluten, eating dairy, eating corn, eating meat. Absorbing calories. There's a lot of things that people are pretty passionate about today that might or might not find their way to a book, chapter, verse in their Bible. 
listen, friends, those differences, instead of making us become turtles that pull our heads in a shell and just become fortresses, ought to be opportunities, according to this text, to interact and enjoy each other's differences as they move us toward principles and understand preferences. Here's the crux. Those who are strong, and by that, just, just for a second, just put yourself in, in Paul's toga for a second, okay? He actually takes the side of the Gentiles. In verse 1, he talks about those of us who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are weak. And, and he goes back, if you go back to chapter 14, those who are weak are the Jews who are holding on to their Judaism, don't miss the fact that Paul was a Jew of Jews and he, his Christianity had elevated his understanding beyond the Old Testament regulatory laws to Christ being the fulfillment of those laws. He says, those of us who are strong, the Gentiles who basically said, it doesn't bother me, it's good meat. Sure, it was offered to an idol, but as he says in 1 Corinthians, there's no such thing as an idol. It's meat and it's good meat and it's cheap. But if that bothered the conscience of his believing Jews, he said, then I don't need to eat meat. It's incredible. Remember Paul's admonition. Look back at chapter 14, verses 1 to 5. He says, except the one who is weak in faith. Now, he's speaking to those who are stronger, meaning they're not trapped and and, um, uh, tripped up by regulations that would define their godliness outside of God's grace Accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Now we're starting to get to the, the heart. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. One who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Stop right there. He is say, he's saying those with different convictions that are not doctrinal, that are preference-based, those with weak positions and strong positions should stop having antagonism with each other and there's an understanding bridge that ought to link us both even if even if the convictions don't change. Verse 4, who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. He will stand and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, regards every day alike. The other person does. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind, which tells us That our job is not convincing others, but loving others. Now, the weak are to grow to be more strong. But the strong are not to grow to be more arrogant. Even though many Christian freedoms are not in and of themselves sin... Paul makes this conclusion in his argument in chapter 14, verses, verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or even to drink wine or to do, here it is, anything by which your brother stumbles. That's the central issue. Now, remember how he broke down chapter 14? 
There, there are basically two extremes, two temptations to avoid. The first temptation is to assume the place of God, which is becoming the judge of others. The other is to assume the place of Satan, which is to tempt others. There's a whole discourse we looked at in 1 Corinthians 8 where Paul says, some of you who are strong need to be careful that your exercise of your Christian freedoms and liberties doesn't give others an opportunity to violate their conscience if they actually follow your example. You can actually become like Satan tempting others. That's not good. On the other hand, those who don't participate can have the temptation to be like God and the judge of others. He addresses both of those in chapter 14. So where does that leave us? Well, it was not quite wrapped up and tied up at the end of 14. And it makes sense because this conclusion is in these first six verses of 15. They won't take us long actually to work through because we've done so much work on this in chapter 14. But I want to get to the place of the end where I can talk about a practical plan where you and I can actually apply and enforce this on our own souls. Now, before we look through these verses sequentially, I want you to look at the very end of the argument in verse 6. And I need to teach you just a little bit of Greek. One word today, one Greek word. This is the only vocab word that will be on the test tomorrow. This is the one you need to know. It is a workhorse word, an important word. It's a conjunction that might be one of the most important conjunctions theologically and applicationally in the New Testament. It's the Greek word henna. Henna means for the purpose of, so that. It's like the equal sign in a math equation. A plus B plus C minus plus equals, that's henna, and that gets you to the conclusion. Look in verse 6. Verse 5, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant to you to be of the same mind with one another to Christ, according to Christ Jesus. Here's our word, so that, there's a purpose. Why are we unified? So that with one accord you may with one voice, one, literally one mouthpiece, glorify God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The aim is to work together to give voice to the glory of God. That's where we're going. Everything in the first five verses pushes to that end. October 31st, 2011. It's my first year here as pastor at Mission Road. Someone graciously gave Luke and me, my son, Two tickets to go see the Chiefs. 31st is Halloween. It was a Monday night game. So Luke and I went to this game. Uh, let me just tell you, I grew up in the SEC going to college football games. I know loud stadiums. I had never been in an environment like that in my life. Not only that, if you'll, if you'll remember back, there was, they were buying back and forth between Kansas City and Seattle to be the loudest stadium on the planet. I'm not talking about in America. I'm talking about on the planet. And they had decibel meters everywhere. And there was a scoreboard that was showing the decibels of how loud the, the crowd could get. A few times during the game, they actually made an announcement that they didn't want to be beaten by Seattle on the decibel meter. So they said, let's get loud. 
Now, what was, struck me as odd was they were, these were like between quarters when there was nothing happening on the field, but that's for another time. We were supposed to yell and scream, and I remember Luke and I, we could neither talk at the end of this game. We were screaming and yelling. I was stomping on the, on the floor and banging him on the back and everything I could to make a sound. And The world record was set that night. It's beaten a few weeks later by Seattle, but that night I was a part of a world record. Maybe you saw my name in the Guinness Book. That was a really cool night. You know why? Tens of thousands of people united to do the same thing. Our politics didn't matter. Our religion didn't matter. Our race didn't matter. Nothing mattered except that goal. It was so easy in that moment to set everything aside because the greater goal made the differences irrelevant. The greater goal of this passage is unified, giving one voice to the glory of God in one accord together. And Paul says, you want to you know, know how to do that? Here's the outline. Four ways Christian maturity glorifies God. Remember, we're going to get to glorifying God in verse 6. Four ways Christian maturity glorifies God. You know, I just have to ask as we start, is the glory of God... Not, is the glory of God in your own life and glorifying God with those in our body, is that, is that even on your radar? Is this something you think about? Remember the henna clause, the henna phrase? Paul says that's the purpose. We do all this so that with one voice we can glorify God together. How do we get there? He says you become grown up, you become mature coming out of chapter 14. So let's look at the first way. Christian maturity glorifies God. Number one, maturity sacrifices for the immature. This is just a summary of what he said. Maturity sacrifices, you can say self-sacrifices, for those who are weak or immature. Weakness and immaturity are synonyms here. Paul says, now we who are strong, said in other ways, we who are weak, we who are not trapped by the regulations of festival days and dietary laws and, and the fact that, that drinking alcohol is a sin, we're not trapped by that. We who are strong ought to enjoy our liberties to the nth degree. Is that what it says? No. <laughs> ought to bear the weaknesses, translated another way, the immaturities of those without our strength, strength. And now, if you're confused, and you might be saying, what does that mean and how does that work? He sticks the dismount at the end of this verse. And not please ourselves. There it is. It's self-sacrificial. Paul identifies himself, I hope you noticed that, with those who are strong, which would have been the Gentile believers in this context. Shows us that something, this was something he had to apply in his own life as well. Now, I want you to notice a, a, ver, a word in verses 1 and 2 that's common, it's really important. The word please. See it both places? Not just please ourselves, verse 2, each of us is to 
please his neighbor. Pleasure, self-gratification, self-understanding, self-enjoyment of the things that God has intended for us to be blessed by on this planet. That's a natural thing. It's okay to have that desire. But if we are doing that, Paul says, at the expense of the conscience or to the detriment or hurt of a of a person with a, with a weaker conscience, we're missing the whole point of Christian love. We're to please others and not ourselves. New American Standard supplies this word, and not just please ourselves. Sorry, but the word just isn't in the Greek. It says please ourselves. I think the implication is obviously you're going to please yourself, but probably not the better way to translate that. And the contrast between verses 1 and 2 is striking. He implicates those who are strong that they should use their strength to bear the weaknesses. That means to carry the load for those who are weak. And look at this. It says weaknesses, plural. There's, there's, there's potentially a lot of weaknesses in someone who's immature. And pleasing them and not ourselves. If you go back to chapter 14, verses 16 to 23, the aim is to do that for his good. Let me just say this. Any believer who spends his breath, organizes his arguments, and wastes his time articulating a defense on why it is good and profitable for them to enjoy their freedoms misses the whole point of these two chapters. I just can't imagine Paul defending anything that was questionable. Verse 2, we are to please our neighbor for his good to his building up, to his edification. Now that implies something we're going to come to in a minute that might make all of us just a touch uncomfortable. But let's press on. Number two, again, that's just summary of 14. Maturity sacrifices for the immature. Number two, maturity imitates the example of Christ. Christian maturity imitates the example of Christ. For, he's building an argument, there's a a, a grammatical relationship here. For even Christ, he's using Jesus as an example, did not please himself. You see the third use of the word please? We don't please ourselves, we please others. Jesus didn't please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you, speaking of God, fell on me, speaking of Christ, quoting Isaiah chapter 69, verse 9. This is just a wonderful principle. This is a wonderful insight about our Savior from Paul in this verse. Now, I, don't, I usually don't think about Jesus like this, but think about his, his three decades walking this, this earth. He made the planet. Colossians 1 says he was the agent in the Trinity who was involved in creation. He could have enjoyed not only any, but every pleasure this world had to offer. And he didn't. Even Christ didn't please himself. 
His desire and purpose was to please God. That's what the Isaiah quote is about. Now, that passage refers to the humiliation, slander, false accusations, ridicule, insults, and reproaches that came to and upon Jesus during his life, and especially the, the way he died. The point he's making is simple. Jesus denied himself to honor God and to please those around him. His own pursuit of pleasure was self-denied. He took on the reproaches of others that were ultimately intended for God. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, I gladly take up the reproaches of Christ. What does that mean? They can't get to Christ, but they could get to Paul. He was saying, Jesus took the cross for me. I will gladly take the blows for him. They've kind of gone out of fashion, out of vogue, but remember a few years ago when there was those bracelets? What would Jesus do? I'm going to admit to you, I, I, I kind of thought it was cheesy. I, I thought, you know, I'm not, I don't need a bracelet. What, you know, what, what kind of reminder is this? And is this, a, is this extra biblical? Is this really a, a, a way to rally? And, and then I started reading the Bible a little bit more carefully. Is there a better question? That's what he's saying. Christ is our example. What would Jesus do with Christian liberties and freedoms and opportunities to please himself? Well, he tells us, not even Christ, who created every pleasure, pleased himself. Wow. 1 Corinthians 11.1, Paul says, Be imitators of me. That sounds arrogant until you hear him say, as I also imitate Christ. Footnote. You will never imitate Christ without reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You can't imitate what you don't know. Just as Christ such a simple, simple trajectory. Is he our example? A third way that Christian maturity glorifies God, it sacrifices for the immature, imitates the example of Christ, and thirdly, it learns from biblical instruction. Now, I want to confess to you, verse 4 was tempting to me to spend a four- or five-week survey on why the Old Testament is important and why reading the Bible is important. But we'll just limit it to a minute or two here. Paul says, for, remember it's connected by that for. He's relating it to the argument. For, whatever was written, he just quoted Isaiah 69, by the way. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Listen, friends, this is a watershed issue, a watershed verse and passage that has great significance to us in our day, in our church, in our lives. Again, go to the end first, end of the verse. What's the goal? That we might have hope. Placing ultimate happiness, listen, 
ultimate happiness, ultimate satisfaction, ultimate fulfillment in heaven, not here. We should enjoy this life. Read Ecclesiastes. If anybody is going to enjoy a chocolate milkshake with just a hint of malt, it ought to be a Christian who can say, what a God who put these elements together. This verse teaches us something, first of all, about the Old Testament. He says, whatever was written in earlier times, there wasn't a New Testament finished right now, so what is he talking about? The Older Testament. Don't miss this. He's just been ridiculing the Jews and chiding them and confronting and admonishing them for holding on to regulations that don't please God in and of themselves. And you might expect that he would say, well, you know, the Old Testament is done and let's move on to the New. He says just the opposite here. Whatever was written was for our instruction. It teaches us. Now, I think you can expand this out to the Bible as a general bibliological application, but primarily, listen, he's talking about the Older Testament. How easy is it for you to be attracted to the first 39 books? Do you know that God put all that in there for our instruction? About justification, yes. Go back to Abraham. He was justified by his faith, not by works. A decade and a half before he became a Jew, he was saved. About our sanctification, yes. The Ten Commandments were not intended to be applied to unbelievers. That was the covenant community's response to faith. About glorification, absolutely. Read Job and it talks about the future life with God beyond the grave. It instructs us in how to think and how to live. And certainly that applies to the New Testament as well. But remember this. It says it's written for our instruction. Remember that none of the Bible was written to us. i got to be careful here. The Bible was not written to us. Unless you're an Ephesian, a Colossian, an Assyrian. But it was written, what's the word? For us. Here's for our instruction. One of the divine attributes of Holy Scripture is that what was written in the past not only served the needs of the time, but it transcends the immediate context and applies to you and me centuries and in some places millennia later. For our instruction. They were preserved to instruct us. I mean, just go home and just look at your Bible and think this was a preserved love gift of instruction from God to me. It's incredible. Instructed for what? I love what Peter says in 2 Peter 1. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Where do you get that knowledge? Where do you get that knowledge? In what was preserved for our instruction. He also tells us in verse 4, 
that the Old Testament scriptures provide for us. Look at what it says. Endurance and encouragement which results in hope. Now, I don't want to be too grammatical with you, but you need to look at what's happening here. He talks about so that through perseverance, perseverance is talked about in in chapter 5. It's the ability to live under, remain under, patience, hupomone, staying under a trial, staying under a burden. The burden here is carrying the, the weaknesses of the weak and the immaturity of the immature. You can endure this and make it through that. And I think next is that's separated from and the encouragement of the Scripture. That by applying these things, that's category one, and in being encouraged by the Scriptures, we might have hope. Remember, you cannot obey what you do not know. You cannot love the one you do not know. You cannot strategize against sin or something about which you are ignorant Now, I know what you're saying. Is this the read the Bible more sermon? Yes. How else can we be instructed? I mean, are you reading your copy of God's divinely inspired word? Do you value the examples, the commands, the admonitions given to us, even in the Older Testament? What a gift. There are men and women who died that people might have a copy of the scriptures, listen, that they did not ever possess themselves. Maturity learns from biblical instruction. And a fourth way that maturity glorifies God, maturity generates authentic unity. Christian maturity and only Christian maturity generates authentic, sincere, real unity. Now, verse 5 is interesting because you don't know, is he praying or is he talking about praying? I want to confess to you, I don't know. I, I saw commentators that leaned on both sides, I think both. He's probably praying in his heart, and he's also talking about how to pray. He says, now may the God who gives perseverance. You see how that's kind of prayerful? May, may God do this? May the God who gives, the things we just talked about, perseverance and encouragement, grant you to be of the Literally, oneness of mind, the sameness of mind. And he, he doubles up. He doubles down. Oneness of mind. That would have been enough. With one another. You see how that's redundant? Anytime you see redundancy in the scriptures, that's an exclamation point. That with the same mind, with one another. And then he slides the gospel right in. According to Christ Jesus, who was our example of bearing reproaches for the sake of Christ, bearing a load intentionally that wasn't his, so that, Hina, listen to the redundancy again. With one accord, with, with, with one assembly, you may with one voice 
make much of, glorify, brag about, proclaim. It would have been easy for him to say God, but he didn't. (laughs) This is a direct article here. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's break that down. Perseverance and encouragement. That's what the scriptures provide. If they do, there's a, there's a consequence. We're unified. In other words, let's tie it together. The goal of handling Christian liberties and the goal of handling Christian freedoms rightly is to promote unity and love among the saints, not division and derision. Have you seen, have you experienced talking about some of these issues with others? And instead of it leading to, let's pray about this, let's study this together. It led to frustration, argument, gossip, slander, Even separation? I've seen that. He accents the fact that we are to please Jesus' Father. Why? Why doesn't he just say our Father? Don't miss this. Isaiah 69, because Jesus pleased his Father. Remember, he's the example. That's why he uh, uh, organizes his thoughts and his words. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus pleased his Father. We should please our Savior and our Father too. Now, that's all basically summary. We we covered all of those points in chapter 14. But I just want to pull the car over and talk to you for a moment. Let's be shepherded by Paul for a moment. What would it mean? So what? What does it take to be this way and to do these things and to experience this kind of self-sacrifice? What do we need to do? I'll give you five quick bullet points. You may, be, may have more. First of all, it takes humility. Wow, does it take humility. It's easier to win an argument and be right than it is to live a life and be righteous. Do we want to win the day in the argument over these issues? Or do we really want to help those who are immature? And if you're, I'm sorry, if you're weak in these issues, do you really want to judge those who are doing things that the scripture does not identify as sin and you're going to judge them in a way that God didn't? It takes humility to say, I'm not who I need to be yet. No matter where you are on that scale, I need to move toward Christ and love and the good of those that I, with whom I disagree. The second thing, it involves not only humility but understanding I think we rush in our arguments, in our possessions of these convictions, we rush so fast to judgment and argument without understanding. Let me give you a phrase that was given to me a long time ago. It's not original with me, but has served my marriage and my parenting and my friendships more than any other phrase. Here's the phrase, ready? Help me understand. 
help me understand why you think that. Why you act like that. Why you're... Help me understand it. Give each other the opportunity to articulate. And then on both sides, because of our humility, let's work together with book, chapter, and verse to see what God's Word says and what it doesn't say about these issues. Thirdly, it takes love. It takes love. In the middle of the chapter, chapter 14, Paul says, For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. There's the principle. Is what I'm doing and how I'm acting and the decisions I'm making expressing love for those, even those with whom I disagree. Fourthly, self-denial. If you or I think we're going to get through, no matter what part of the scale you're on, we're going to get through this passage without having to deny ourselves, you're missing the whole point. And that's the fundamental issue that Christ gave in the gospel. If any man wants to follow me, let him deny himself. You are bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6. Your body is not your what? Own. It's It's not even ours. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Self-denial. When's the last time you can point to and say, I didn't do something I wanted to do for the sake of someone else, or I did something I didn't want to do for the sake of someone else? And then lastly, this is kind of the conclusion to the whole thing, knowledge. Remember the help me understand It means that we're basing our love on our knowledge of the gospel and our knowledge and relationship with one another. We know each other. Such that I won't disagree and disregard someone because we disagree, but they're my brother. They have the same eternal last name. We are always related. Paul told the Corinthians... Chapter 10, verse 23 of his first letter. All things are lawful. I could actually do anything that's not forbidden by the scriptures. But not all things are profitable. In other words, not all things build up the people around me. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Are you and I willing to test any of our preferences with that passage? You know why? To those who believe Jesus is precious. His death for our sins, his perfect life in resisting temptation, his his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to heaven, his seat at the right hand of God. That pulls us, that woos us, that impacts us, that implicates us. I think it's impossible to be in a room with this many people to assume that everyone knows Christ. You're probably listening to this, how Christians relate to each other and thinking, I'm not really sure I even understand what that's about. Join the, join the struggle to be holy with us. 
by giving your life to Christ. And let me encourage you. The church, this is proof. Romans, the, the, the church at Rome, rather, these Romans were not fully mature. They hadn't wired it. First Corinthians, the Corinthians weren't either. If you're joining any church, if you're coming to Christ, you are joining imperfect people trying to glorify God together and working it out with one another because we love one another. I want to invite you to re, push reset today. Realign your thinking that Christ is worth any sacrifice, all sacrifice, that heaven and hell are real, that forgiveness of sin is offered, that mercy from a wrathful God is accessible. And if you want to talk about that, in a few minutes our prayer room will be open. We would love over here to the right to talk with you, to share with you. You can speak with anyone around you about what that means.